Hello, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, where we talk about plant molecular biology um, and cats. Mostly and that, we rant. yes. Mostly cats and molecular biology and of plants. Um, I had um, somebody on Twitter said thank you for making them say plants and pipettes instead of plants and pipettes. Yeah, and that made me immediately self-conscious uh, whether or not it's actually correct <laughs> what we're saying. Because then I tried it's to definitely th wrong. think back at the English speakers that I've known through my life and try to remember if they said pi pipettes or pipettes. Yeah. And I don't know. The problem is you've only got me and I'm Australian, so it counts for less than nothing. It's it's useless. I mean, the nice thing about English, and this is what I always tell my parents who are like pedants for not speaking like Americanized English in Australia, um, is that English is defined by whoever speaks it the most. So yeah. if we dominate enough, everybody will say pipettes and then we'll be right by default, by like brute force, basically, which is... yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you're very much welcome, everyone, to listen to us saying the word pipettes. Pa mm. uh, uh, now, again, the <laughs> more often I say it, the more self-conscious I get about is it. it. Is it? Is it right? I'm just going to, like, mumble it from now on. Pipette. You know, the fruit that's kind of like an apple, but shaped more like a uterus? That said pear. <laughs> yes, say it with that's me now. a pear. Pear. It's like apples and pears. Apples and pears. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have a beloved Spanish friend who refused to say the word pear as pear. Um, and we just, she had such a strong forceful will that we just all adapted to her because. It was mostly violence um, that made us all adapt. <laughs> but I think that's, that's my demonstration of how, like, the the entire English of the lab, we just were like, you know what, it's pear now. It's just, e <laughs> instead of having a discussion every time one of us says the word pear, <laughs> let's just make it pear. Less. Everybody's happy. <laughs> It's so much it's less fine. pain if we just say peer. Um, yeah. Yeah. How have, how have you been doing? I am very exhausted this week, but I had some, like, my my accomplishment of the week, apart from being exhausted and having a sore neck, is that either two squirrels or one squirrel twice came and took a, um, <laughs> a peanut from my hand. <laughs> I think it's probably one squirrel twice because it was in the same day and the second time it saw me and literally ran towards me and then kind of looked at me like give me a freaking peanut woman um, uh, now you have a so friend squirrels are in um, <laughs> as far as my good books go and spiders are out because there's <laughs> I already put this on Instagram stories my life is very small right now guys um, <laughs> but I already put this um, up the fact that one spider has decided to deliberately make a web exactly over where I keep my chocolate biscuits which just seems like a jerk move and that like it kind of vibrates in what I can only describe as a judging way every time I reach for another chocolate coated digestive biscuit so I don't know I had a spider overnight um, draw like one string of spider web across our staircase just like right in the middle where we walk and so in the morning it we immediately destroyed the, like the very feeble web and we're like Sorry, spider. It's just a really corona cautious spider. It's like maybe don't go outside yet. Maybe like maybe but it was stay our inside. indoor staircase from the west wing uh. of our mansion. <laughs> yeah, then it's a jerk. Then let's just agree that all spiders are jerk and be done. No, no, just, I mean that, it, it was such a long distance that the spider had traveled that it must have been a lot of work, like energetically for the spider. And then the first thing we do is we run through it and break it and. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe had, we like, were the prey. Maybe it actually tried to catch us. And so it was the perfect location. It was just very mal miscalculated strength of the web. 
<laughs> yeah, he was trying to do this um, plastic cellophane trick where, you know, you put <laughs> it on the ground and the cats run into it and then freak out. And he was like... <laughs> but that's quite like, this is the bridge problem, right? Do you think he had a tiny little kite that he first had to fly across from one side and then he... I mean, otherwise he was doing really big kind of pendulum swings across. I have no idea how spiders so do impressive. this. So um, impressive. Yeah. Spiders were impressed by you. <laughs> and we're outside of Australia, so we're not even that afraid of you. We're just generally, generally impressed. I actually thought you would bring up as your biggest accomplishment of the week um, your viral tweet that you posted. <laughs> um, uh, that makes me so funny, mostly because you were like, "What is happening? I'm angry." <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, usually, so this was usually we say it's me on Twitter um, that you reach, but then Tegan uses Twitter like once every fortnight I mean, and then usually gets our best tweet out ever <laughs> well i mean like usually i'll say you'll know it's me on twitter because i'll sign off t but now you just know it's me on twitter if it has more than 10 likes that will be the <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the threshold yes. no um it wasn't anything about plants which is kind of the problem so <sighs> i did the bad thing where i argued with strangers on the internet um which was immature of me but I had some restraint and <laughs> it was basically um, somebody put a, like, a kind of joke tweet thread about how it's so hard to wear a mask and they listed basically all of these situations where people wear masks and are fine but in a kind of sarcastic way so oh you know nuns they're always fainting while in their habits oh you know Batman he's actually dead but no not Batman because Batman wears a half mask um, yeah, the Spider-Man he's dead behind that mask like they just had this kind of continuous list of basically mocking people who are saying it's very hard to wear masks yeah. and somebody replied to that tweet thread um by saying oh yes very funny but it's quite hard for people who have breathing difficulties and asthma to wear masks or something in that kind of theme of like oh but it is quite difficult and that's fine i don't think it's wrong that some people do have um trouble breathing and wearing a mask i think those people are either likely to have problems breathing normally or might have some anxiety which is also contributing but I really don't like people using people who do have a problem with breathing as their excuse for not wearing a mask if they don't have a problem breathing um, especially because people who do have chronic diseases with their lungs we're the ones you really need to wear the mask for because if we get COVID, we are done. <laughs> and I don't want to be done. I'm 31 years old. I want to keep on going on and living. So um, I just wrote something which was, I have one lung. I don't speak for everyone who has one lung, but I just want to say it doesn't make it difficult for me to breathe. I do wear a mask and I can wear a mask and it's fine and I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. Um, and then that got retweeted. It's now on 666 likes and, and a few t retweets, which is not... It's not really viral, but it's for it is our for standards. <laughs> for our standards, it was um, a very impressive thing to have the notifications thing going up all the time. It was pretty funny. Um, and as again, I I was I did very much say I don't speak for all of us one lungers, and of course I don't speak for everyone with breathing difficulties. There, like I'm sure there are people out there who do have genuine problems breathing and wearing a mask i just want to say if you're just using that as an excuse if you had asthma as a child and now you find that it makes your face a little bit sweaty and using that as an excuse you're a jerk like yeah that's and if you 
don't have very severe breathing problems and you find that putting a mask makes it hard to breathe, practice. Like, it's hard to wear a condom the first time, but you do it. <laughs> like, just like, put it on <laughs> and work out how to do it. I, I don't know what the, the other, I don't know. It's hard to put a bra on. Bras suck. They're uncomfortable. They make you sweaty. Uh, <laughs> what else? Uh, <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to wear your sports shoes without socks, but it's not a win for anyone. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, I actually then, I have a group of people. I mean, I don't have a group, but I belong to a group on Facebook that is for one-lunged people. Um, it's called One Lung People Unite. And I actually put a poll there to ask people who have one lung, if they themselves had any problems with wearing masks. And I don't want to go too much into the details because I didn't like ask them if I could do a, a survey and publicize it, but there was over 60 people who responded who like are in the situation of having a lung. So severe breathing difficulties, I would say. Um, and I think only three of them said they don't wear a mask, maybe four. And all the others either said, it's not a problem or it's slightly a problem, but I do it anyway, mostly because, you know, mm. breathing difficulties, but would rather not die. Or so a lot of them said, I'm trying to stay at home. I have to shield because of the, the problem. So based on that, again, this is not science. This is just like a, a curious question. My feeling is that this, this community of people, they are being very careful for themselves. Um, and the idea of not wearing masks is less credible to me if you're in that risk group and to me But it's the a similar idea that uh, like herd immunity when it comes to people who don't have the breathing problems it's even more of a reason to wear a mask because there are some people very few people that actually can't wear a mask but they are much less than some people may make it sound um But these people, they can't wear a mask um, for a good reason. And to protect those people, we all have to wear masks. Because the masks mm. that we wear, they're mostly to protect others and not us. So mm -hmm. if you don't have severe, severe breathing problems, and that's something that it's not just asthma or, as you said, like for most people, people in this tiny survey um, who even have only one lung that literally have like half the lung capacity of a healthy uh, adult um, even they can wear masks and breathe, breathe fine so um, just just wear a mask just protect others um, just help to to reduce the spread and from what i've heard is that it's it's already effective now for many other transmittable diseases that we usually have in this this season like um the flu season was shortened um other like respiratory diseases were um reduced greatly with through the distancing and through the uh, wearing of masks somewhere on twitter a while ago I, i read already that that pharmacists are reporting that they've never been healthier at, the, at their workplace because usually at the pharmacy mm. all of these people with a cold come in and sneeze and cough everywhere and now they have the plexiglass shields in front of their counters and everybody or mostly everybody wears a mask so suddenly the pharmacists don't get sick anymore so these mas masks they work they work on so much more than just the the COVID-19 so um, just just wear a mask and make life better for everyone yeah anyway that was my <laughs> my small one of course there's now somebody who replied somebody replied to me and then somebody called that person a dumb for applying so now I have to kind of field people being like don't be jerks like I 
again, as I said, I, I don't speak for other people. There, there are people, so somebody was like, oh, I have asthma and it, it, it is hard for me to breathe. And then somebody's like, well, you're a dumb then or something basically like that. Or you should, shouldn't be a dumb Don't be that person, guys. Like yeah. you don't need, you don't need to call strangers on the internet dumb It's just like, get your own podcast and call people dumb on your podcast. Like that's <laughs> the civilized way that we've all agreed we're going to do it. Um, yeah, um. that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> and also suck at your arm. um yeah i uh i didn't do much um one thing i just noted down blood because i did a um, (laughs) blood test um in in the in my own home like from a from a company where you can test your blood for antibodies against different foods um and it gives you an idea if you have any not strictly speaking intolerances but some foods and might give you a little bit more trouble it's not even a full like full-blown allergy because that usually you know that you have an allergy for certain foods but it's things that upset your stomach or where your digestion doesn't work properly or where you feel unwell after eating it but this can often happen um like 48 hours to 72 hours later so you don't really know why you're feeling shitty and it's because of the reaction of your body to something you ate two days ago Um, okay but it's a blood test it's antibody based it's not a genetic test because you can also do genetic tests to look at tolerances so this is this is blood test yeah exactly so Mm -hmm. and this is only one type of antibodies um um that's that you can find in your blood and it also doesn't mean that if you find them that you are absolutely like reacting very strongly against these these uh, foods it's just that you have this antibody yeah i'm not i'm waiting for the results now but it was fun to do a little experimentation at home or not experimentation but like some sampling i have like poke my finger and then collect a vial like a test tube full of blood um a little test tube yeah a, a small test tube yeah, yeah. it was he's showing it, me with his fingers guys it's, it's not like this was the huge. test tube, but it was like I think 300 microliters or 400 microliters, so not <laughs> not a lot. But I had to stand there and like massage my finger to get like the blood drops out, um, mm. and I don't know. To me, it was just fun to have again like a little reaction, like a little kit at home. I mean, I used to do lab <laughs> science when I would pull up a kit and then do an experiment, and this this time like I pulled up a kit and I had to like poke myself and collect the blood and then like i mean um, st- you're saying you enjoy playing with your own blood well t- yeah, <laughs> like i enjoy playing with like the test tube and then sending it away and now waiting for results and looking forward to see like what my, my wife did the same to thing do this though huh why because i i took part in a product test that they did like a like user the interface testing thing and i got a voucher for their company and i could pick one kit essentially for free and i chose this one um and uh, yeah my wife my wife got already the results back and um for her she she should has some reaction to pineapple and kiwi which she doesn't eat a lot of so that's fine but um she has banana for some reason a very strong reaction um something Mm -hmm. that we haven't seen yet in our diet that that was a problem for her but now i mean now you've got a test you gotta like slip banana into her food and see if she said that tomorrow we do the positive control like she eats nothing but bananas and then we watch her for 72 hours how she reacts you can get like these um what is it esters or whatever ethers i don't know these um aromatic compounds that have the banana flavor and the banana smell you need to get that so you can like blind test her because if not i mean (laughs) banana has a pretty it's pretty hard to to not know that banana is happening right yeah yeah otherwise make her eat some really hot chilies burn her taste buds off so she can't (laughs) tell the banana um and then when that's finished screwing up her digestive system then slip the bananas in (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah yeah so um i'm looking forward to like maybe next week i'll have the results and then finally know what what upsets my stu- my stomach <laughs> finally know how you're special <laughs> yeah so far i, did, I don't um, have any allergies and nothing and i feel left out like when people <laughs> order at the restaurant everybody can ask like uh, is this gluten-free does this oh, have dear, any yarm. peanuts in it is there um, any lactose in the food and i'm always sitting there i'm just like i'm fine yeah, eating I'm pretty anything sure, like 90 percent of our listeners are millennials and they all just switched off when you started insulting their allergies <laughs> i'm not insulting them i'm jealous and next time i hopefully i can say something <laughs> about ridiculous. like do you have like a tomato free dish because it slightly upsets my tummy when i eat that <laughs> yeah no i mean <laughs> when people are there with like oh severe allergies that are actually have actually problems i'm just like <laughs> Yay, science has made Yoram more unbearable. <laughs> Amazing. No, I mean, I, I also saw these ads on my Instagram. So obviously, I am also hypochondriac enough that they know to, to target me. And <laughs> it was like testing 200 different allergens. And I wanted to do it, but it cost also 150 pounds or 200 pounds. And I was like, mm, mm. maybe mommy and daddy can give it to me for my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> are you listening, mother? <laughs> That's what I want. Um. Uh, <laughs> What a weird gift. I think I'm just going to like try and ask for stranger things as I get older. <laughs> yes. Well, although I wonder where this will lead from here. But I, think I mean, a pet octopus comes to mind. Yeah. Like quite, quite obviously. But I think at the moment it would scare my cat. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Um, um, do you want to talk about a plant? <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about plant stuff. favorite plant and this week it is my favorite plant um, and i chose erodium secutarium um, which is a plant uh, that's also known as red stern fillery red stem stalks bill or common stalks bill or pinweed and pinweed gives already stork a, bill, like like the bird yeah like the, the bill of the, bir- okay. the bill mm-hmm. of the stalk um, mm-hmm. Because the the main feature that's interesting about it is the the seed, and that has uh, some similarity to a stork bill um, or a pinweed is also a very good name for it, because um, this plant, uh, the overall appearance appearance is uh, from the picture that I have here. To me, it reminds me of parsley a little bit. Um, um, but it has these very special fruit and seeds. Um, and the interesting thing about this plant is that they are self-drilling. There are these seeds that um, have a, an end and it's called an awn. Um, and it can be a, a coiled like a spring. And um, the spring action of it, first of all, propels it up to half a meter away from the plant when the seeds are ripe. And then uh, this coil helps the seed to bury itself in the ground. Okay, so wait, it, it's ripening on the on the bush, and then at one stage it gets kind of dry enough or ripe enough that it springs off. Yeah. And then somehow that spring is also helping it bury itself. Yeah, because the um, the own in the, uh, at the at the end, sort of the long tail of the seed. Um, is made from such a material that it reacts to humidity. When it's dry, it's completely elongated, and mm-hmm. when it's uh, when it's wet, when it gets humi- humidified, it uh, coils up like a spring, and through through several cycles of drying and wetting, um, this spring sort of um, rewinds itself, and then. Uh, in, in sort of a clockwise and counterclockwise manner and that helps to push 
the seed into the ground every time um, it dries and then gets uh, re-wetted re again. And there's actually a video of uh, the action of this that we'll link in the show notes where you can see uh, how this um, thing rotates. Um, and then the seed sits on the ground and you have this the, the spring and you have sort of a long tail at the end of the spring. And this is a lever that sort of um, sticks against the ground and then as the, the spring uh, winds or unwinds, it drills the seed into the ground. And within a couple of days of um, these day-night shifts in humidity, um, the seed actually gets buried uh, underground. And yeah, it's a pretty cool mechanism that only uh, fairly recently, um, I think I, I link also to um, a study, or not fairly recently, I think in 2011, they figured out the mechanism behind it. Um, and since then, yeah, um, people have been yeah exploring more. Or oh, this thing got the attention of more and more people. It actually got the attention of uh, our beloved author Stefano Mancuso, <laughs> who mentioned this also in the book that we talked about I at length last week. I thought it a little week. bit familiar. Um, but yeah, uh, he in in the book he also said this was intentional by the plant. Um, <laughs> Wait, he said yeah, he said the plant knew what it was doing in the sense of it had. Like a yeah. mind, I mean, it, it is intentional in the evolutionary sense that it's been selected for, but it's not intentional. Yeah, it's it's not an intel intelligent decision, but we don't have to open that can of worms again. <laughs> um, but it's just an yeah, it's an interesting plant. It's uh, actually um, native to um, Macaronesia or Macaronesia. This Macronesia. is Macronesia. This is uh, the islands of the west north uh, of the coast of North Africa, um, and then also to um, some parts of Eurasia and north and northeast Africa. Um, it was actually introduced to North America, where you find it now um, fairly often. Um, so in, in many arid environments you, you find this plant nowadays but it's originally um, from nor um, northern Africa, Eurasia and the Macronesian islands So I'm looking at this image that you've put up and I recognize something that's similar to the plants at least as far as the seeds because when I was a kid we used to have this and it's um, the seeds I don't know how to explain them. They kind of look like a needle, but the, the eye of the needle is fattened at the bottom. And when I was a kid, we used to make little scissors out of them. So you get one of them and you kind of put a small um, hole in it with your hands and then you slip the other like seed in it and you kind of make these little seed scissors. So I'm not mm. sure if this is the same species, but if there are any Australians listening and you remember this experience, <laughs> let me know. Um, yeah. But yeah, little scissor plants. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of these interesting mechanics you find in, in plants where from a very simple physical principle, which is humidity, um, you get sort of this macro movement happening. Um, we see in plants like, like cell turgor, um, so the inner pressure inside the cell can also drive many of the movements of a plant because they don't have muscles like, like animals do. Um, so they sort of use hydraulics, water pressure, or um, materials to react to humidity um, to get move movement going. And in this case, even quite forceful movement because the, the seeds, they are really expelled with force um, also through a change in humidity. Um, so yeah, that's quite cool. Hmm. Okay, I looked it up and it's the one that we I probably played with as a child as well. Oh, nice. So I, I didn't bonus points to Yarim for having a connection to Australia or Germany again, <laughs> as we seem to always do. 
<laughs> yeah, and this time really by chance. Like I unfortunately I didn't have the chance yet to to play with these seeds. Um I find them yeah, I find them quite fascinating. I would love to have them in my garden. Maybe I can look up if it's a good idea to grow them here in terms of like invas invasive species and so on. I don't know. It does it like dry land, like dry habitat, so I'm not sure it, if Germany it, would be too wet for it. Berlin gets drier and drier every year. We had like two years of drought in a row. Um, it's true so maybe soon we'll have nothing but that anyway um, let's wow. move on <laughs> diversity in the class science um, yeah, so it's going to be quite a short one because I couldn't find so much information on um, today's uh, plant scientist so it's Elke McKenzie and Elke McKenzie was born in 1911 and died in 1990, so quite young. Um, and she's originally a UK citizen um, and she is a botanist. So she studied actually at the University of Munich. So we have our, our needed German or Australian connection again. <laughs> and she had quite a deep interest in, in kind of Germany. And I think that's because Germany has this very strong history of research in the natural sciences, and specifically in the botanical sciences. Um, so I think the most exciting thing about her is that she was part she was involved in something called Operation Tabarin. Have you heard of that, Yoram? No. Okay, so Operation Tabarin occurred during the Second World War and it was a secret mission instigated by um, Churchill. And basically the idea was that the Brits went to Antarctica. They had a kind of pretense that they were patrolling the Antarctic waters from German raiders and U-boats that were like threatening the Allies. But they kind of wanted to be on Antarctica as a way of having this British territorial claim mm. to Antarctica. So it was a bit of a land grab. Um, so they sent this this group of this expedition called Operation Tabarin, but they also loaded a whole lot of scientists on there. And the scientists, I guess, when they got there, they just decided to do science anyway. So it actually resulted in the collection of a whole lot of rocks and fossils and botanical specimens um, from this Antarctic region. So, yeah, it had some some scientific value even if it was a little bit kind of silly sounding to me this mm. idea of of claiming antarctica um and so elka is kind of involved in this and during this she collected lichen samples and she actually discovered a number of lichen species um from antarctica and i think this is really really cool because as we all know antarctica is particularly harsh in it's environmental conditions. It's not only very, very cold, but it's very, very dry. And these are things that plants normally don't like. But lichen is this crazy combination of like algae and fungi coming together in a symbiosis. And lichens are just amazing. They can exist in the most ridiculous places. And I remember learning when I was younger about how there are lichens. There's this like lichen crust like on the, the ice and snow of mm -hmm. Antarctica where basically nothing else can grow. They're just chilling there. I mean, literally chilling there and doing their thing. So I think, yeah, this is, this is a kind of fascinating subject in itself. It's also insanely cool that she got to be part of this secret mission that went down to Antarctica in the World War. Um, and she also, of course, had, like, she was really fascinated with plants generally. So she had a private herbarium with over 3,000 specimens. Um, she kept on gathering specimens 
throughout Canada. Um, yeah, and dun dun dun. Yeah, she then uh, collected through Europe and Mexico, and um, she now has several um, species named after her, and in fact, an entire genus. So one of the species is, uh, I'll see if I can say the name right, uh, Verucaria mackenzie Lambi, mm-hmm. um, which is one of these lichens, I believe. And then there's also the genus Lambia. So I said that her name is Elka Mackenzie, and the reason the species in the genus have the name Lambia instead of Mackenzie is also because Elka was born um, and assigned male at birth and was born as Ivan Mackenzie Lamb. So um, she had gender reassignments very late in life, only when she was about 60, I believe, so in 1971. Um, so, yeah, Elka had sex reassignment surgery, um, became Elka, so so moved away from the name Ian and became um, Elka McKenzie. And after that, she mostly spent her time sort of out of the public eyes and away from the more traditional botany stuff that she'd been doing before. Um, but what I think is quite interesting also is that during that period um, of transition, or like not the period of transition, but there is there seems to be some evidence where there are papers which are published by Lamb. So all of the the botany work is from the scientific name I am Lamb. So even Mackenzie Lamb was was the birth name that Elga had. But there are some papers that have, I think, both the Evan Mackenzie Lamb name and also have acknowledgement to Elka Mackenzie as a lab assistant. So it's placing um, both of the names on the same paper. And this is kind of a, a thing about science, which is quite interesting, is that the way we value like publications and the, the, the name on the paper makes it a bit difficult to change names. And it has this like weird identity. And that's already something which exists even in very like obvious ways where um, women who get married throughout their career have to choose between switching their name and possibly losing their link with their their older papers or keeping their um, maiden name in their in their papers like a scientific maiden name and then a married name and it's kind of this weird thing but yeah I, I very much like that she managed to get acknowledgement of her identity on her papers which, yeah, was like sort of showing the the, the public name, but also the identity mm. that she had later in life at the same time. So, yeah, it's cool. Elka McKenzie, um, who was a UK British polar explorer and botanist who specialized in lichenology. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, very interesting looking at, um, to me, it's just the, the idea of this very early like Antarctic expeditions um, in the, like, must have been then during the war, right, in the 30s, 40s, and then finding species there. Um, Yeah, I'm always amazed by that. I think that's that's pretty... it's pretty cool to think like usually I think of the ice shelves as fairly devoid of life because it's it's such harsh conditions. But there's actually um, I've seen other researchers uh, like from modern days as well that like inve- uh, study algae that that bloom uh, in glaciers or under perma in in the permafrost in the in the permanent ice mm. and so on. Um, so yeah, that's pretty cool. And these extremophores are extremely important for the the ecology and the dynamics of 
like carbon fixation and the entire life cycles that happen in these extreme environments. Like the everything else in that environment relies on these these weird little guys who are somehow able to be green and fix carbon and also exist because that then feeds, you know, tiny little plankton, which then feeds larger, larger fish and so on. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's amazing that plants can, can do this and, and their cousins as well. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for presenting that. Yaram's going to talk about bias. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 Yes, today it's my turn to talk about um, a favorite cognitive bias and I chose the peak end rule. And this is the idea that uh, we value experiences in our past, not based on sort of an average of, um, of the experience or um, according to, um, I don't know, the average of the three best things we liked or disliked about something. But um, we mostly base it on our peak experience so be it positive or negative and the end of the experience and mm -hmm. this has some interesting effects um, because usually the peak um, during an experience is something we can't really uh, change if if we undergo a medical procedure if we give a presentation the peak is just something that happens somewhere during the experience and can be good or bad and that's something that shapes our our memory of it um, but the end is something that's very easy to have an effect on and this is what many people who study this effect but also who sort of use this effect take advantage of um, and a very basic experiment a lot of it was done by Kahneman and colleagues and Daniel Kahneman is maybe um uh, known to some people because he he wrote like an uh, an important book about um, thinking and cognitive um, behavior like thinking fast and slow and I think mm -hmm. he also won a Nobel Prize um, for something but the Nobel Memorial Prize for Economic Sciences um, is what he got Memorial Prize uh, it says here on the excerpt from Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Um, no anyway, idea. so he's a fairly uh, um, well-known psychologist and economist, and um, in the Wikipedia article that I read about this bias, um, he uh, most of the studies that he presented were with his involvement. Um, so a very basic experiment that uh, he and his colleagues did um, was having a group of people put their hand in very fairly cold water, um, I think 14 degrees water, and that's not a very pleasant uh, experience. And then um, one group of them also had an, a follow-up experiment where they had the same amount of time the hand in cold water and then the hand in slightly less cold water, so slightly less... Um, a negative experience a little bit mm -hmm. more positive experience and later they were asked which of the two experiments they would like to repeat just the cold water or the cold water with a little bit less cold water afterwards and they tended to remember the experiment with the second step uh, better they in their mind it was the more pleasant experience although objectively they were exposed longer to unpleasant temperatures they were just they sort of had this step upwards in the end and the end made it seem nicer. And in an experiment that I found even 
more fun, um, sort of, was um, that they did a study with colon colonoscopies where they asked the, the medical staff to leave the equipment inside the patient for three minutes longer than the actual procedure takes, but uh, in a sort of unpleasant but oh. non-painful position and interestingly mm -hmm. because like the rest of the procedure can sometimes be painful and then having the step that's just unpleasant but not painful made the people remember this whole experience as a nice experience with the results that they would come more often to to uh, follow-up checkups and also follow-up colonoscopies um what's the ethics on this i mean that's what's a the very clear? good question because this that's exactly the point there very suspicious I mean, this was a, um, a medical study, so you could argue that uh, for the sake of the study, it was fine to have this extended discomfort of the patient. No. But in in uh, real, no, like, in, in no. during standard application, it's a big ethical question. Like, even if it leads to this patient be sort of um, happier with the procedure in the long run and also following up more um, and doing more of the, the, the next steps in, in the treatment, it still means an objective extension of discomfort to the patient, which in medicine you try to reduce that as much as possible. So I mean, also there's probably medical risks involved with keeping people open for longer. Like, no matter how, like, they're probably quite negligible these days with, you know, cleanliness and stuff, but yeah. getting closed faster seems more... I mean, yeah, it's but colonoscopy. I mean, a colonoscopy it's, is... It's no, there's uh, no opening and closing. Yeah. It's just discomfort. But still, um, yeah, it's it's raises ethical questions and there's no good answer to this um probably Can according to medical standards you can't take advantage of the effect but you could yeah you could think about whether or not this is would be good to can i just also say that for the hand thing like the hand in water thing i'm not very good at thermoregulating my extremities so when it gets cold i just lose all feeling in, in my fingers and toes so for me it would actually be objectively better to have the longer cold and then the warmth because I can't rewarm myself. So having an external thing that rewarms me is actually letting me rewarm. <laughs> so but I'm it was not still cold water. It was I have just questions. It was it was still cold water. It was just like you would gain one I think it was only one degree difference or something that you mm. would gain. So it wouldn't really okay. warm your hands again. Um or only ever so slightly. Um mm. Other places where you can find this thing applied is in, in businesses where no matter how your experience in the shop is during a business transaction, if the end is nice, you remember the whole shop experience as more pleasant. So if somebody opens the door for you, if you get something for free in the end, if you see, hear nice music when you leave the shop, all of these small things can nudge you towards uh, overall better memory even though the clerk maybe before was mean to you um, you sort of in your mind you trick yourself into like yeah there was this mean person but also in the end somebody was very polite to me uh, so the overall experience wasn't that bad um, and so that's where people <laughs> try to take advantage of it and I'm having flashbacks of so many like retail experiences in Berlin <laughs> where they were rude the entire time and then they were rude as I left <laughs> Um, which yeah. of those two rudenesses affected me more? <laughs> yeah. It's so hard to tell. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine them trying to do like the controls in Berlin. They're like, no, you have to be nice at the end. Like, you have to say nice things as they leave. <laughs> They're like, no, this is not this is not the hip way in Berlin. 
yeah in berlin it doesn't really apply in berlin you can't really have any positive experiences in service um and oh, the final I thing you. i want to say here where it sort of brings it back to why it might be interesting for us as researchers um is in when you give feedback or criticisms on other people's work um there's this this idea of the the sandwich right that you um wrap something like you have a negative point and you wrap it into like a positive thing in the beginning and a positive thing in the end and it works together with this um with this bias so this supports the idea that this is a good idea to nicely frame your criticism but it even works if you have nothing but negative things to say but you stack order, order them in a way that you end on the least negative thing that you want to say in, in, in your criticism so you can say the harsh stuff in the beginning and in the end you have a fairly mild criticism it will still give the person who receives all of the negative feedback a less bad impression than if you would change it around if you would start with like the, the mild criticism and then end on the harsh criticism um, mm -hmm. And if you want to, if like, if you can't say anything nice about something that somebody's presenting or the feedback that you're giving, but you still want them not to be completely destroyed by the feedback, or you want them to use the like be productive about it later on you don't really want to like bring them to tears or destroy their <laughs> whole day with your very harsh criticism by wrapping or like ordering it in a way that you end on a on a not so bad note on like the, the nicest thing that you can say um they just have a better time and that might mean that they so this all sucks but your beard looks pretty today <laughs> yeah. and then they're like okay criticism taken <laughs> yeah and I wondered if for me, my, my memory of my PhD is, is so negatively stained because I didn't end on this high of a defense yet. Oh, it helps. It definitely helps. Yeah. I think like the defense itself is also quite a traumatic experience. And then the fact that you survive it is, gives you a feeling of accomplishment. You know, we have this, the harder something is, the more accomplished we feel when we finished. Even if we, no matter how well we do, we have this accomplishment feeling. So I think there's... I mean, you'll do your defense. Yeah, and usually there's cake in the end. And so um, you end on a positive note usually with your defense. Um, yeah. So yeah, maybe that, maybe I need that to then change my brain to think about my PhD as an overall I mean, there's, there's some thing. trauma that no amount of head pats can get, o like, can <laughs> overcome, right? It's not, it's... <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah let's let's see about uh, like how i feel about this um if i hopefully yeah. defend at one point and then we can talk again if and your phd time was not that bad out. i mean no no i like there's people who had it worse than me but i still <laughs> had some bad times mm. um yeah so that's the peak end rule be nice in the end this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins this is where the fun Uh, I'm clicking through my fun tabs and none of it's very fun. Um, <laughs> guys, I, I grew a really big zucchini this week and I'm really proud of it. And Diorum's going to put a photo of it so that now if you look down at your, your phone playing the podcast right now, you'll see a photo of me proudly holding my zucchini. <laughs> Diorum's giving me the evil through the screen. Um, <laughs> I have no news. I have... I, so I did want to comment on one thing. I think a lot of you have probably heard about the US and it's Trump's decision to 
make international students who are going to be taking online courses next year leave the country. Their visas might have become void. This has now been overturned because some of the big old universities like Harvard actually decided to sue Trump. Um, so it looks like that's not going to happen. But that's clearly just a horrific idea because it's a lose-lose situation. Either you force people to go to class and, and, and get potentially COVID and die, or you force them to, to, to leave the country and not be able to complete their degrees, which is, I mean, it's abusive given that they've already committed financially to your country's institution. Um, but this is also a problem in other countries. And there was a Korean news post in Nature that came out on the 9th of July, which was about Australia. It was Bleak Financial Outlook for PhD Students in Australia by Chris Woolston. And it's kind of talking about the similar thing. And basically, Australia has a very high cost of living. So you get quite good pay there once you have a job. But like housing, um, transport, food is all quite expensive. And when we were doing our PhD, at least when my partner was doing his PhD, my ex, um, he did it a few years before me the PhD students were paid basically at the poverty line. So they were scraping by and part of the PhD scholarship is that you're not supposed to work more than a certain amount of hours extra. And of course, if you've done a PhD, you know it's not that easy to work while doing a PhD. But this is a situation a lot of PhD students are in that they are having to work. Um, anyway, the article is generally about how it's kind of terrible generally. But there was a quote that I just wanted to bring to people's attention... So it's talking about the problem of this, obviously, is the problem that we always have when prices go up, is that certain people can afford to, to stay there and others can't. So basically, the statement is, the shift could drastically reduce the diversity of higher education, she says. And there's a quote, the last thing we need is to gentrify our labs. Um, so it's, again, something that's come up time and time again with COVID is that the effect is disproportional on people who are already disadvantaged, so people who have less financial abilities. Um, COVID is affecting women disproportionately because of um, caring situations and so on. So, yeah, have a look at that article, but this is a, a big shame on you to Australia. Yeah, that uh, reminds me of, uh, of an article that I, I read. I didn't bookmark it yet, so I'm trying to find it um, on the <laughs> site here. Um, but it was about the idea that um, the whole situation right now also disenfranchises um, or has a bias against uh, female researchers because mm -hmm. they are often the ones that have to stay home then to take care of the children. And uh, with the, the daycares and schools closing because of, of uh, COVID, um, they have to stay at home. Uh, and that means that they have to that they work less effectively which stops them or like hinders them in being uh, able to publish and advance their careers and it's such a um su such a competitive field in 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 academia that if you lose a year because of that um it might be the end of your career because then you run out of funding you run out of um you're not competitive anymore in certain grant applications and so on and so forth so um this is also something where um, grant agents, uh, yeah, grant agencies and funding agencies and also institutions have to find countermeasures now, and I think they are already in the process of developing those to alleviate these effects to some extent, um, because otherwise we will see even more underrepresentation of women in research um, than we we did before, because they 
very often are, are hit harder by by an increase in family duties. Yeah, and I think I think we maybe we discussed this already on the podcast, but there are already some preliminary studies that suggest that this has already happened within a few months of lockdown. So um, they were looking at the amount of females who have first or lead authorship on papers that went up, I think, on BioArchive or maybe it was Archive, so this preprint service. And they found that that had already decreased within the first few months. And I think that's kind of terrifying because it doesn't, that's not going to be the problem these first months. What's going to be the problem is what's happening in six months' time or a year's time when there's, I mean, there's this lag effect of productivity and how it represents in the CVs and then the ability to get jobs and get more funding. So, I mean, yeah, yeah women is, is an issue, but anyone who's in a worse situation financially is obviously just being so hardly so hard hit by this at the moment and okay yaram you have actual fun facts <laughs> yes i can see a fish <laughs> yes um it's a it's a fish that i actually sent to you already as a sort of reaction image before and it's really um it's a very stupid looking fish um i think it's fair to say that um yeah and the whole story is just that they created um the fish version of a liger, which is a cross between a lion and a tiger, two distinct species that are compatible and can create offspring. But I think the offspring is infertile. Um, and so this is the case here. Um, and they, they crossed by accident, I think, in a fish farm, a paddlefish with a sturgeon. Um, what do you mean by accident? Like, were they, were they inseminating or were they, I don't know how it works with fish? Um, to be honest, I didn't read the full article. <laughs> You're, um... I saw the, the headline at the image and it was it, it looked very stupid. And so I put it in here. Um, uh, it's fine. It's, it's usually why we tell say you to go and read they, articles because we didn't. The, the eggs uh, and sperm from American paddlefish and Russian sturgeon were combined in the lab. So probably okay. on purpose. Um, and a hybrid of the two species was b born. And they call it... Um, a sturdlefish because it's a <laughs> it's a sturgeon and a paddlefish and it just mom it i has, take it back i don't want an octopus i want a sturdlefish <laughs> <laughs> and it has the stupidest look on its face um i think it's, it's as surprised so as we as we are that it at its own existence also the way they're holding it it makes it look like it's a um like a bubble gun <laughs> like it looks like a, one of these like pew pew and it makes bubbles coming because it's got this really long ridiculous nose which I guess that's from the sturgeon. Which one yeah. has the long nose? Yeah, I think the, stu the sturgeon has the, the long, long pointy nose, but then it's sort of... Then it's got a pig nose on top of like, so it's got a long nose and then where the nose should connect, like the long beaky nose should connect to the face, it's got like kind of pig nostrils, which are right next to its eye. And then it also has these really fat, juicy lips, which look like it's kind of trying to make out with something. Yeah. Here it says they it was an accident, so they didn't do it on purpose. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Hungarian researchers, it says in the article. Um, yeah, so just just have a look at the picture. I'll put it in um, in your podcast app right now as well. You can enjoy the very surprised and stupid look on this fish's face. <laughs> so I found um, a study that's up on preprint, so it's not been peer reviewed yet. But it's multi-level convergence of complex traits in the evolution of bioluminescence um, by Lau and Oakley. And it's just showing that so bioluminescence is this ability for organisms to glow. And it's quite common in, in deep sea creatures. And it's, it's just generally, I would think we can all say it's quite cool. Yeah. Um, and their study shows that this has evolved multiple times independently, as many as 84 different times bioluminescence has developed um, in on our planet. So I think that's quite awesome. 
that all these organisms have found a way to glow and be pretty. Um, and it's also made me realize that this Halloween I'm going to be a vampire squid. <laughs> and I just, I wanted to put that out there because I know it's only July, but it's my idea and I want it to be known, like I'm, I'm claiming it. <laughs> so the top half of me is going to be a vampire and then I'm going to be a squid and together I'm going to be a vampire squid and I'm going to glow. That's, <laughs> yeah, it, that's the plan. The fact that it evolved several times independently makes me quite jealous and um, I'm just demanding the, the our intelligent creator or intelligent designer that oh why why am I not glowing? Why don't I have the capability? If apparently <laughs> eight different creatures can could evolve 84. it independently. No, no, it's it's not it's not eight. It's eighty four individual evolutions, which doesn't yeah, mean it's even eighty four species. It could be like Most one of those species, could be yeah. an entire family or genre or like. But if if so it, it was eighty four if times it evolved, why couldn't it be eighty five and humans as well? Like that's true. I'm I'm fairly upset. I, I'll write a stern letter to the intelligent <laughs> designer <laughs> and ask for my ability to glow. <laughs> like to you're just trying to piss people off this episode. <laughs> yes. Like first the millennial crowd, now the the god crowd. What's what's going on? And just sometimes I'm I'm such a edgy contrarian. Um, <laughs> I saw like a thread that was like, oh, what's the kind of, I don't know, edgiest or most controversial thing you've said on your podcast? And I was like, what have we said that's controversial? And, you know, because I'm self-involved and narcissist, I was like, we never say anything edgy. Everything we say is true. (laughs) (laughs) The people who disagree are controversial. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. They're the problem. I'm not the problem. They're holding up the line. Um, (laughs) But then, of course, I was scrolling and I saw somebody who was like a men's rights activist and their podcast is about how I don't know feminazis are the worst because they're always claiming that the patriarchy makes problems <laughs> and I was just like rage quit rage quit yes. I need to go <laughs> show me Instagram and pretty art please yeah you can't you can't win in these discussions it's just <laughs> just can leave and do something better with your life yeah um, I have something um, a plant fact or a plant research thing um, is it and it's about microplastics. It's actually not good news. <gasps> I saw. It's terrible news. <laughs> it's terrible news. Um, there's two studies that came out. One in nature sustainability and the other one in environmental something. Um, I just have a... I, I link to an article that summarizes both studies. Environmental research is the other um, journal. And they found in these two different studies, they found microplastics in fruit and vegetables. Um, mm. And they have different ideas where they come from and also different sort of experimental setups. So in the study in env- environmental research, they looked at actually sold produce that was um, sold in supermarkets and in local farmers markets in Italy, um, where they could find um, very small particulates um, of only a few micrometers inside of plastics that they could find within the produce. Um, and they hypothesize that they can travel, that they can be taken up in the roots, either through the membranes or through like tiny cracks in the roots when the roots are growing and the, these cracks are big enough for microplastic to enter and then be taken upstream and end up in, in the fruit and in the leaves. And in the other study published in Nature Sustainability, um, they looked at uh, hydroponic cultures um, that were growing on wastewater because the idea is that when you have a plant growing in hydroponics, which means that they grow in just um, water without soil, um, if you use wastewater that's potentially rich in nutrients, you can then like 
make something make a product from these nutrients by having plants growing on them but as the wastewater potentially is contaminated with microplastics um, these plants um, were able to take up the microplastics and also deposit them in their fruit and in their leaves um, the sort of good news is we don't know yet if these things are harmful but that means mm. also they could be harmful we don't know it yet but they could also be harmless and we don't know it yet uh, microplastics is, is a thing i think we have to acknowledge by now that they are everywhere i think they found them in fish and in animals in insects now in plants um, so we as humans managed to spread these microplastics pretty much into every living thing in the world now the question is, how harmful are they? Um, and can we generalize? Are there some that are more harmful than others? What are the causes of this? Um, but as we eat the, the fruit and vegetables, they put the microplastics will probably also end up in our bodies. I mean, that's actually something my friends and I were talking about today, that we should get these. You can get traps for your washing machine so that... Um, the micro like because clothing is is plastic if, if it's not a natural fiber it is in fact plastic and every time you wash your clothes you can shed this stuff that then gets washed down the drain so you can get um sort of uh, traps that wash with your clothing and they kind of trying to collect all of the yeah. the microplastics to make sure it doesn't get flushed into the water system so yeah. i mean there's still the microplastics but it's now in land not out in the sea and being eaten by yeah. by fishies and stuff yeah um it would be funny if, like, suddenly we worked out what the hell the appendix is actually doing, and the appendix is like, "I've got this," and it just starts like gathering microplastics. That's like, it starts it, it lifts itself up and starts moving around the lower intestine. I, I actually don't know where the appendix is. Come at me, um, real doctors. But it just starts. It turns out it's migratory. It's it's, it's mobile, and it just starts like chomping around me, like, rum, rum, like a little Pac-Man. I'm imagining like nom 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 nom. I'm like scooping up all the. Yeah. microplastics yeah i mean that, that that would be nice to know um if if that would be the case um i have my doubts but yeah. that's the most controversial thing we've we've said i'm gonna the appendix is definitely going to cure you of <laughs> microplastics i'm saying it now i'm saying it hard lock it in <laughs> okay <laughs> all of you suckers who got your appendix removed too bad <laughs> yeah you are now susceptible to microplastics well you're going to be pooing plastic but i think that's that's yeah. the future for all of us so would you rather give up your appendix or one lung tegan in your experience dude obviously <laughs> the appendix it does nothing actually like when i was a kid i always wanted to go to antarctica um i had this idea i'd become a scientist in antarctica and study there and at the time if you wanted to winter in antarctica you had to have your appendix removed sort of preemptively anyway so mm -hmm. I always saw that as part yeah, of my career path. An appendix emergency uh, on a research vessel in Antarctica pretty much uh, means death, right? Because well, do you mean there's a doctor down there, like I mean, a real doctor, yeah, not, but, uh, not a lichenologist? Yeah, you know, if there are yeah. any complications, and because you can't be transported off off there, right? If if the seasons are are not right yeah, and they in can't winter, come in with a helicopter, stuck. then you're stuck there with your emergency. Um, so yeah. Yeah, so um, let's hope that our appendices will clear up the microplastics that we eat from the fruit no, and veg. <laughs> You're legitimizing my insanity by saying things like yeah, this. You, should, I, I, you have to be the voice of now. reason. Please create Facebook groups and spread the message appendices are important for microplastics. That's mm. the little bit of fake science that we promote. Um, no, we don't. Please don't do that. This is a, now a, a serious disclaimer. Don't spread fake science. We're just joking here. Uh, I did. I, I don't think I mentioned this last time. 
I asked somebody for facts for the podcast and they sent me a fact about penguins propelling poo. <laughs> which <laughs> it's there was actually a study that came out in 2003 in polar biology uh, by Mayer Rocha Rocho and um, Gal are the two authors. And it's it's quite logical, actually. It's the fact that if a penguin is sitting on its nest, it doesn't want to get up and move because it's freaking cold out. It wants to hunker down there, but it also doesn't want to crap its nest. So it just kind of pokes its bottom out at a, at a jaunty angle and squirts the poo. And in this original paper, they worked out the pressure at which the <laughs> penguins are able to expel the watery material. Um... <laughs> And um, they liken the viscosity to olive oil, for those of you at home who want to play penguin. Um, so this study, again, it's, it's, what, 16 years ago now, and it won the Ig Nobel Prize. And now there is a follow-up per a study that came out at the start of July on a preprint service on Archive, and we'll link to that. And <laughs> it's trying to work out the projection, how much... I think the same penguins could poo if they were in a higher location. So now instead of just standing on the ground, the penguins on a kind of plinth. Um, and the the second <laughs> the second sentence from the abstract is practically it is important to see how far feces reach when penguins expel them from higher places. <laughs> Why? Which. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely interesting, but I'm not sure if important yeah, is the right is way. It important? <laughs> <laughs> and I would really beg you guys all to go and look at the the diagrams in this, because firstly, they have a diagram of a penguin standing on a plinth with like, remember the physics you did in, in grade school when you were trying to like calculate the, the angle and the velocity coming out from his butt. And then figure two is the model for his his stomach where the penguin, and I, and I kid you not, is is having these little sweat beads as the pressure builds up in his gut. So <laughs> we're going to link to that. I, I highly recommend it. I love penguins and <laughs> apparently penguin poop is a part of the penguin experience these days. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I wanted to use this as a cat fact because I don't have a cat fact, but it just fits so very well now. Um, so I'm just going to say it now. Um, on the topic of penguins, in the Kyoto Aquarium, they created a large map for visitors to see, to see the complicated relationships between the individual penguins. Because um, some penguin species made for life and others don't. And, and this uh, penguin species very much don't made for life. Um, there is like more drama happening than in the average like telenovela um, and yeah they have like a color-coded chart where you see like which penguins are together which penguins broke up sometimes the caretakers sort of are also part of this network when the penguins are really attached to certain caretakers um they say there's like one particular female penguin um that broke up with um a number i think five or six other penguins and usually whenever they break up the penguin that's broken up to they refuse to eat for a while because they're upset and sad and so she did mm. that to a couple of male penguins who were all then very upset um while she sort of um had short-term flings with them and then <laughs> broke up um and it's just it's it's very adorable <laughs> it's a very complicated map actually um of 
this penguin mating in, in Kyoto. And now I actually want to go there and see the chart for real and also the penguins. Whoa, that's insane. And all of the penguins have like little pictures of them. And to the untrained eye, they pretty much look identical. I mean, they're different photos, but they all look just like penguins. Can I comment on the fact that at some point there are people in the map as well? Yeah, I mean, Could these you are the caretakers that, that they, sometimes the penguins get attached to them as well. And I can't okay, read so the Japanese like on the map because like for, for the caretakers, they don't have like the, the red heart symbol line. So probably they're not in a relationship with a penguin, um, but they have a sort of arrows going back and f to and from the, the caretakers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I need to know what's happening there. That's amazing. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I guess it looks like a subway map. There's so much happening. There's so many connections. And there seems like quite a lot of penguins as well, to be honest. Um, and I forgot to mention, there's also like friendship and hatred. So some penguins hate other penguins. And these are the green lines in, in the diagram where they have like enemies. They have feuds between each other. <laughs> so it's really oh, a complicated social diagram between them. And it's just so good, Yoram. Like, some of the penguins, they also look mad. Like, look <laughs> at their little faces. They're like, like. They're like angry, wow. angry, small waddling birds. <laughs> and small, yeah. And so much, so small, so much rage. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so have have a look at that. Um, there's a couple of pictures. I mean, it's all in in, in Japanese the the pictures, but it's with close ups and with the with the little icons. You can you can understand what's going on. Um, and also sometimes there's like a question mark where it's like unclear how like are they still together or not and stuff like that. So I wonder how yeah. often they have to update this map. Like, is this something where every week they have to like? change a red line into a sort of a bro a breakup line or um, change a friendship line towards an enemy line. And um, yeah, I want to know so much more. <laughs> yeah, I just have one thing I wanted to mention. I found an article on, um, on Gizmodo um, uh, about all the ways the influential hydroxychloroquine study was crap. And it was quite interesting to read. It's uh, There was a study by Didier Raoul uh, from um, the French, from a French uh, medical institute in Marseille. Um, and he published this very, um, yeah, it, it became very famous, a study that this, this drug hydroxychloroquine um, was a good treatment for COVID-19. COVID and then... Like people like Trump got really excited about it. Um, the World Health Organization started like pushed for more research in that. Like they sort of fast track research um, in in that the area. The Brazilian so president on. is now taking it. Hmm? The Brazilian president who has COVID is now taking yeah. it. Yeah, but as uh, apparently um, they the drug doesn't really work like this. Um, the, the, the World Health Organization dropped their research on it because they said it led nowhere. There was no further proof that it's actually working. And, and now it can also the cause initial heart problems. Mm -hmm. It can cause heart problems as well. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's something that can have quite severe side effects. And the initial study by Didier Raoul and uh, other researchers 
um, came now under very severe criticism for um, shaping the data and especially the way they selected patients for their study was um, like borderline fraudulent because they dropped some patients uh, within during the study that would go against their hypothesis um, and there were some other things that were um, just like poor scientific behavior um, so they excluded uh, six patients from the study um, uh, because they, some of them who, whose conditions worsened after they got the drugs um, and also some, one person uh, was excluded from the study who actually died during the study um, who got the drug while in the control group nobody died and things like that happened so people say now the study is bogus um, and yeah. also the follow-up studies on the same drug couldn't find any evidence and there was uh, something happening that's not happening that often which was a post-publication peer review so they would um, people would look critically at the study after it was published and then um, the journal who actually published this study, uh, this study had to publish a sort of a follow-up, a correction um, based on the post-publication peer review. Um, and one of the, the uh, authors of this uh, post-publication peer review uh, a, a guy named Rosendahl from the Netherlands says that this study is nearly if not completely uninformative but uh, and was very um problematic because given the desperate demand for a treatment for COVID-19 coupled with the potentially serious side effects of hydroxychloroquine this study was fully irresponsible or the publishing mm -hmm. of it and I yeah I now whenever I hear people suddenly like coming up with a miracle cure I think of this example where they published it they went very public with it they gave lots of interviews they made it sound like it was a very sure thing and then as it turns out over a longer time when people actually try to replicate it try to look into it try to use it um they realize it's it's bogus it's not working um and it's this is extremely problematic right now i mean this this means that people get given the drug that get the side effects that means um other treatments sort of uh, the research for other things um gets not the same priority because they think there's now the promising thing now we have to push this um so this is yeah very problematic but an interesting I mean, also read. also as a comment on the peer review process i mean the peer review process is, is definitely fallible it's not perfect usually you get like two or three reviewers um they might not have the right expertise and they might not be like clear about that um it, it can fail right yeah but also on on the kind of same topic in the wake of covid people have been seeing how fast science is moving in the context of COVID. So there's been a lot of stuff that's going through preprints, but also journals are prioritizing COVID papers and putting extra resources to get COVID papers express published. So you, you can see this if you look at actual published stuff that has been peer reviewed, they can often have a watermark on them saying this has been um, express published because it's, it's, it's a very important topic. And some people look at that and say, oh, like, this is good. This is how the peer review process should work. It should be this rapid. And no, I don't agree with that. Um, yeah. Yes, it's it's troubling how slow getting things published are. And this is very problematic for young early career researchers. And I like the idea of having the preprint as an option to show that you're working on something. But the peer review process does take time and it should take time because 
peer review should be done properly and also peer review should be an iterative process so it shouldn't just be like here's my paper and everybody says yes gold star it's perfect publish it that doesn't happen it should be okay but please do this this and this and this so that i'm convinced of your results and then you go back and and this this makes the science better so yeah i just i think that's kind of important i have seen some things say oh look look how fast we can do science why don't we do science this fast normally well yeah, we don't do it normally that fast because we don't have the resources and, and it's it's hard to do. It's not it's not really possible to constantly do it that fast. Yeah. That's my argument. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's something that like especially when it the stakes are this high, it sort of needs to be done very carefully and it can't be rushed. But I can also understand how the people who are reviewing this, they also feel the pressure right now because they don't want to be the ones who delay potentially life-saving information, right? Yeah. If you have, I mean, a part of peer review is that you can only look at the data that is presented to you from the initial researchers. So sometimes yeah. you might have a hunch that this there might be something off or um, yeah, it's not always a 100% clear decision where you can say this is uh, wrong and I'm certain of it and therefore this needs either to be corrected or the paper needs to be rejected. Um, sometimes it's more gradual than that. And I can, um, like, if I would be in the position of a reviewer right now in, in this field, I would definitely feel the pressure of of rather giving it a little bit more leeway towards like I would rather trust the researchers than rather deny it because if I deny a treatment that actually works and it gets postponed six months because of the, the review process um, that could mean a lot of death that are mm -hmm. I mean so I that's, think that's, like, that's my point was there. not so much about that yes there's that, that, that problem that when you rush things it can be problematic but my point is is more also about that things are currently able to get reviewed very fast. We're having this very fast turnover pipeline, but it's because everybody in that pipeline is dropping everything else to prioritize that one thing because we're in a state of emergency. And yeah. this response cannot happen for all science all the time. And while it is very, very important that we get COVID stuff published, people are dropping all of the other science in order to focus on COVID. Yeah. And that cannot happen eternally forever that's just a thing yeah. right so yeah. and i'm not speaking i'm not saying covid research shouldn't be happening i have a very strong vested interest in getting medicines and and vaccines but to see this as a realistic model for all science all the time this is something which i'm i'm very scared of like i'm skeptical of Cat fact. I think this is interesting just because it brings up our beloved Silk Road. Um, if you are following our other podcast, The Plant Book Club, that we have with Ellen Earhart, um, we've been reading plant-related books and talking about them. And the first book we read, was it the first book? No, the second book we read was about um, the movement of plants across the Silk Road. And this fact is about a cat skeleton that was found on the Silk Road. Um, and it's the earliest evidence for domestic cats. So there was a almost complete cat skeleton um, found buried in Kazakhstan. I do have to quickly say and edit here that when I said a nearly complete skeleton, I meant a skull and some arms. <laughs> it doesn't have a lot of like the vertebra or the rib cage there. So it has like kind of the bigger bones involved. And it can be dated for back to 
775 to 940 years before, no, years after in Common Era. Sorry, from 775 to 940, so it's around that time period. And it's it's the first the first known evidence of domestic cats. And the the authors I think said that the fact that the cat seems to be in quite good good nick and it seems to have lived for some years, even though it broke some bones, suggests that it was probably a pet cat and not a a wild cat. So I think that's that's good representation for cats. I've heard the fact before, and I'm not sure if it's true, that cats are the only domestic animals that are not mentioned in the Bible. And I've also heard some cat haters use that as evidence that cats aren't cool. Um, so here, at least, we know that they were around, you know, maybe 700 years after the Bible, if not hanging out in biblical times. I, I heard that cats are one of the few domesticated animals that were that were not domesticated by us but who domesticated themselves and i just because of that idea that i just had now i i, I googled it and i found a, an article in national geographic where they say that uh, according to uh, ancient dna samples they domesticated themselves obviously i couldn't read now through all of the details here but uh, we'll link that as well so yeah cats are truly special i think they just came and uh, realized they that saw. we have like we have grain silos silos that have mice in them so it's like mm. a good supply for food the humans have houses that are warm and sheltered and so just the cats hung around and the, the humans were like oh this is a, like a soft very beautiful creature um i'm okay with this and so they just started to hang out together and it was not that humans like actively domesticated them like they did with dogs that they used for for guards or um mm. or cattle that they actively nah, the selected. Cat just rocked up one day yeah that, that a cow rocked up and and people uh, was like oh yeah it's fine if you take my milk um i just hang around here and eat eat some grass i know they were like actively farmed where cats they just like decided that it's cool to live with humans so yeah that's why cats are the best if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me with the unpopular post. That's at Plants Per Pets. Or if you find a very popular post on Twitter, that's usually written by <laughs> Tegan. If you want to see somebody whinging about their lung again, <laughs> that's me. Um, I also whinge about my lung on Facebook and Instagram. That's at Plants and Pipettes. And we also have a blog that's www.plantsandpipettes.com where we talk about different um, plant stories usually twice a week. And there's also links to this podcast. And usually I don't talk about my lung at all in that context. Uh, you can rate us on iTunes. That would be very cool. Uh, or wherever you can rate podcasts. And please tell your friends about this podcast so we get more people excited about plant science. The opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And I think that's it. Goodbye. That's it. <laughs>